Welcome to Heritage Mississauga's Black Heritage Matters webinar series. This is the third of our four-part series during Black History Month. But before we start, we will, we will begin with a land acknowledgement. We acknowledge that the land on which we meet today is part of the treaty lands and territory of the Mississaugas of the Credit. We recognize the importance of this land and pay our respects to the Anishinaabe and other First Nations, Métis and Inuit people, past, present and future. So welcome again to our Black Heritage Matters webinar series. This week's presentation is entitled Courageous Conversations, Connecting Black History to 2022 and featuring Order of Ontario recipient, Rosemary Sadler. Special thanks to our funders, the Community Foundation of Mississauga Hazel McCallion Fund for Arts, Culture and Heritage and the City of Mississauga. So it's a special honor to welcome Rosemary Sadler, our speaker this week. Rosemary Sadler is a recipient of the Order of Ontario, and she is a social justice advocate, researcher, writer, consultant, and international speaker on Black history, anti-racism, and women's issues. She is the past president, having served for 22 years as the unpaid leader of the Ontario Black History Society. She was the driving force of this, uh, that secured a commemoration for February as Black History Month at all levels of government. She secured August 1st as Emancipation Day municipally in 1995 and provincially in 2008, with a national de declaration recently passed, now making this a national commemoration in Canada. She saw the creation of a national day to honor the Honorable Lincoln Alexander. She has given deputations to the UN on race relations, the, to the federal and provincial governments, and on consultative work with the Royal Ontario Museum, the Ward Heritage Interpretive Group, the Bi-National Study of the Underground Railroad and Heritage Conferences. As an educator, she has developed or contributed to Afro-Canadian curriculum, national exhibits and publications. She was appointed a member of the College of Early Childhood Educators. She is an author. Rosemary has written seven books on Afro-Canadian history. As a consultant, she affects diversity, equity and inclusion projects and recently was appointed uh, Equality Lead for the Americas and Caribbean uh, with the Royal Commonwealth Society. Sadler, or Rosemary is dedicated to social justice and using the frame of black history, seeks to educate and empower others. And Rosemary was also uh, very instrumental many years ago with some of the work we did at Heritage Mississauga when we reached out, not really knowing what we were doing and made connection with her back in 2006 to support a local black history research project that we were doing here through Heritage Mississauga. And even Rosemary doesn't quite remember that perhaps, but it was something that was significant in the, in the uh, early years of our research here in Mississauga, just knowing that the support was out there. And so Rosemary, thank you so very much for joining us here uh, at, uh, at uh, Black Heritage Matters in our webinar series. And uh, as I say in, in Good Movie Things, over to you. Uh, and uh, really appreciate your time and your enthusiasm for, uh, for taking part in this week's uh, presentation. Well, thank you so, so very much. I, I really do appreciate being asked to speak today. And as you can imagine, February is incredibly busy. Um, everybody is trying to celebrate February's Black History Month, which I'm delighted about. Um, so um, having been a central figure in this whole celebration, I do hear from a lot of people. Um, I'm going to try and share my screen and uh, apologies in advance for any technical hiccups because um, this isn't my forte and when technology works, I'm so excited and delighted, but um, there are times when it doesn't always do everything that we want it to do. So right now, do you see um, a full screen of me? Yes, we do. Okay, wonderful. So we'll move ahead then. Um, my pronouns are she and her, and um, there we go. So slavery and black history in Canada. Why is it that we have a special month for people of African descent? Why is it important in 2021 through to 2022? And what is the understanding? Why is that the understanding of Black history important to us now? Now, of course, you've already given a, a land acknowledgement, and certainly uh, we always should be doing that, making uh, reference to the land that we find ourselves on. But we also, I think, need to acknowledge the uh, African presence in this country. 
So I would like to acknowledge that this land was settled and supported very early by people of African descent. The first named being translator Matthew da Costa by 1604 and of the ongoing and seminal contribution made by him and those who preceded and followed in Canada's development. Um, I think that it's important that we acknowledge that people of African descent uh, who are not settlers, but whose ancestors were forcibly displaced as part of the transatlantic slave trade, brought against their will to work on these lands. We must fully acknowledge and understand how our history of inequality continues to this day. We must acknowledge that African-Canadian history um, and African-Canadians were integral, to, uh, an integral part of shaping Canadian history and continue to do so. Our history would not be the same without the Black experience. So these past couple of years have been uh, significantly uh, impacted by COVID-19, the racial pandemic. And what that has done is put us all in a position where we have had time to give consideration to what is important, what it is that we need to know, uh, how to protect ourselves and how to protect our community's health. It also is a time to give consideration to um, what the racial pandemic has meant. And certainly with the uh, public execution of George Floyd uh, some months ago, we've seen a greater focus on the needs, the priorities, the importance of the concerns expressed by the African Canadian community. Now, um, I have of course a very particular reason for mentioning this as a person who is um, a generational Canadian, as a person who has experienced growing up in this country, as a person who has served this country for a very long time, in particular through my efforts with the Ontario Black History Society, um, I have, I bring, I think, a particular perspective. And that perspective is one that um, is aware that people of African descent have not been represented. Uh, they haven't been represented in general in society. They have not been represented in general in our curriculum. And they have not been represented in just so many different ways. And this is despite the success of some very few people in, re in reality. Um, when you consider that people of African descent have been in this country since the 1400s with as courier de bois uh, and the 1500s, uh, Africans are known to have found the cities of Detroit and Chicago. It's quite interesting that we still know so very little about their contribution to the development of this country. And um, the first named African already mentioned being Matthew da Costa arriving in 1604. This is a long time for there to have been a black contribution and a very long time for that contribution to not have been reflected in our systems. Um, just one more piece on that. I am uh, the person who helped to ensure that February as Black History Month was acknowledged. I did that not because I went in with a mandate uh, necessarily to do so, but in um, becoming the president of the Ontario Black History Society in 1993, after having been on the board for a number of years, I was unaware that this was uh, a commemoration we had to seek from the city of Toronto on an annual basis. And we had missed the deadline. Um, so I scurried to do what I could in order to get the commemoration so we would have a Black History Month in 1994. But I realized how very 
precarious this all was. And I tried to get a secured annual commemoration with the city of Toronto. But knowing that Black people and people who were interested in social justice were not just in Toronto, I sought a proclamation with the province of Ontario, which I got. I sought a proclamation with every province in this country, which I got, although they may not have been as formal as I might have liked, but that didn't matter because when I was successful in getting a national, uh, a national uh, declaration of February as Black History Month, after years of building a community of interest through presentations, exhibits, curriculum development, and so forth, um, as part of the process of carrying on the mandate of this organization, I was delighted when um, the Honorable Jean Augustine, who was almost in Mississauga, she was uh, representing Etobicoke Lakeshore at the time, uh, I was able to get her to take it to the House of Commons. So effective February 1996, uh, we have had Black History Month celebrated in this country. And I'm very delighted that I was on stage representing regular cultural workers along with the um, political representatives on the national stage with that first celebration. But of course, Black history doesn't begin in Canada. Uh, it doesn't begin with me. It doesn't begin uh, in any place other than Africa. Um, before the enslavement of Africans, Africa was flourishing with many great kingdoms, places of learning, wealth, and excellence. Um, Egypt was one of the major civilizations of Africa, a black civilization, and it flourished between 1550 and 590 BC, where the calendar was invented, as well as a form of writing called hieroglyphics. And it's also where two wonders of the world find themselves, which include uh, Nubia and, um, um, sorry, which include the Sphinx and the pyramids. We also, and this is a map, wrong projection, the Peter's projection is much more accurate, but um, this shows some of the um, African civilizations I'm referring to. It's also the place where the Nubian civilization existed from about 1000 BC, um, which included the communities of Kush and Meroe, another, the stone city of Zimbabwe, another, the Ghanaian Empire, which was well known for its trade in ivory and gold, was a center of learning, had a university called Sankora University in Timbuktu, and that university had between 400,000 and 700,000 items. And um, of course, the Songhai Empire, which was the largest single uh, empire in, on, on, in Africa. Um, it's important to remember that despite this excellence and this um, civilization, Africa was often referred to as the dark continent influencing how we think about this significant place in world history. It may have made some people think that Africa was shrouded in mystery or populated by very primitive populations, or that it embodied matters that were not important enough for us to have to bother knowing about. In other words, it was perhaps this hor a horrible place. Uh, the reference to the dark continent may have allowed the idea to continue that there was nothing there and may have supported uh, negative stereotypes about the continent and its peoples. Um, explorer Henry Stanley first referred to Africa as the dark continent in 1878 in his book entitled Through the Dark Continent. However, we know that by 1604, the first free African arrived on these shores, uh, traveling with Samuel de Champlain 
and acting as an interpreter between and among the First Nations and the Europeans, effecting trade that lasts to this day between First Nations, Canada, and uh, Europe. Slavery was not necessarily born of racism because people, Africans, First Nations, Europeans were working together, but rather it was a consequence of slavery. And certainly the first enslaved African arrived on these shores by 1628. It was an eight-year-old child whose name was Olivier Lejeune. He, um, despite being baptized uh, and raised as a Catholic, uh, was always an enslaved person and unable to be free. Um, unfree labor in the new world was brown, was white, was black, and it was yellow. It was Catholic, it was Protestant, and it was pagan. However, various circumstances combined to produce the exclusive use of enslaved Africans as cheap labor. It was easy for white or First Nations to escape, but it was not as easy for a Black person to escape. And the Negro slave, the Black slave, was cheaper. Um, so that's part of the reason that um, the enslavement of Africans be took such a strong foothold. And of course, this is what slavery is from, um, from the capture of Africans, from the transportation of Africans and from um, those who managed to survive the horrendous conditions on tightly packed slave ships from their labor once they made it to the new world. Um, this is a map of the transatlantic slave trade. And I think that it's so critical to look at where these arrows lead. Significantly, people were captured from Africa, various countries in Africa, and they were transported directly to South America, directly to um, the Caribbean, and directly to the United States. They tended not to be brought directly to Canada, but they would come into Canada with their owners. They would come into Canada with people who, with people who were either in the United States or the Caribbean who chose to come into Canada. And that's how um, we enslaved Africans arrived here. And of course, in early Canada, the enslavement of African peoples was legal and it helped fuel the colonial economic enterprise. Um, the buying, selling and enslavement of black people was practiced by a European uh, traders and colonists in New France in the early 1600s, and it lasted until it was abolished throughout British North America in 1834. Canada is further linked to the institution of slavery through its history of international trade. Products such as salted cod and timber were exchanged for slave-produced goods such as rum, molasses, sugar, and so forth. And of course, it was really expensive to try to maintain uh, and house and feed uh, enslaved Africans during our long winters. Uh, you, we didn't need to have the same kind of workforce because um, the, slave, the um, fur trade was very predominant and First Nations and Europeans were involved in that significantly. Um, and also, um, in terms of subsistence and farming, usually that was something that could be handled by the family themselves. Um, and of course, by 1685, the Code Noir made slavery official. We know that um, by um, 1734, um, there were enslaved people in Montreal, in Quebec, and Marie-Joseph Angelique, was somebody who is known to have caused the um, arson of that of the city of Montreal, either um, by accident or purposely in her efforts to escape slavery. Um, most Black people in early Canada were held in bondage, but they, um, and it was further supported by 
the Peace Treaty of 1763 and the Quebec Act of 1774. Slavery was incredibly profitable. And this is the reason that it continued and thrived for such a very long time, particularly in the United States and the Caribbean and South America. Uh, according to some sources, um, the production of sugar, tobacco, and cotton in partic particular um, resulted in perhaps a 1,700% profit margin. When you don't pay for your labor, it's quite, uh, quite, um, quite, quite um, profitable. Um, some people think that abolition was about morality. Um, and it may well have been, but it also had a very strong connection to um, changes that were taking place in terms of slave owning, changes that were taking place in terms of what had happened following the um, Haitian Revolution, changes that were taking place that made it seem less possible because of the slave insurrections themselves that help people understand that this was a situation that was not going to last. A slave market. By um, um, Lord Dunmore, um, during the American Revolutionary War, uh, declared martial law in his colony and decreed that every person capable of bearing arms, including uh, indentured servants, Negroes, or others must report for duty. Immediately, there were 300 Black men who joined the Ethiopian reg Regiment. In Ontario, then called Upper Canada, the last will and testaments of individuals were supported through the courts allowing slave ownership for next of kin to be recognized. Without this guarantee, many slave-owning loyalists would have lost their remaining property and at least 500 slaves arrived in Ontario with the Loyalists, although most Loyalists headed for the Maritime Provinces. Black Loyalists consisted of 10% of the total number of Loyalists who came, and there were about 30,000 Loyalists, 3,500 being African. They got the freedom, but the land that was allocated to them was poor. Some people have said the only thing they could grow was rocks. Um, they couldn't sustain a family, especially in the Maritimes. So they were forced to abandon their land or squat on property for which they had no legal title, only to lose it once more formal land claims came about. More Black people arrived, particularly following Lord Dunsmore's uh, declaration. Um, and Essentially, they were claiming freedom for having helped Britain, which controlled Ontario and what is now Ontario. Um, they, they claimed their freedom, but they weren't really given equitable treatment. By 1790, the uh, imperial statute effectively allowed settlers to bring enslaved people into Canada. Um, but they only had to be fed and clothed. Any person that was born of an enslaved parents became free at age 25, and anyone who released someone from bondage had to be sure that they could be financially independent. However, in Ontario, the poor treatment of slaves is evidenced by Chloe Cooley, despite there being an abolitionist as our first Lieutenant Governor of Ontario. In 1793, Simcoe was informed of a slave woman, Chloe's, uh, Chloe Cooley being bound and um, rowed across the Niagara River to be sold on the, literally to be sold on the other side. Um, he was really alarmed by this because it was his intention to try to end slavery, but he had slave owning peers in government with him, including Peter Russell, and William Jarvis, the executive secretary of the, the um, secretary, excuse me, of the executive council. 
So it was compromise legislation that was passed, which shortened the period of enslavement at a time uh, by the time a slave was 25 years old and halted the importation of slaves. It ended the length of time of servitude for European indentures, but it did not free Africans. Just a quick note that um, thousands of Black people um, who volunteered during the War of 1812 also came into Upper Canada. And um, some of them, including Richard Pierpoint, helped to found one of the very first Black colored cores, which helped to defend this, this area. Um, and I think it's critical to mention that because the tradition of all Black units continues to this day, well, continued until World War I, which is why we're about to have an apology from the federal government to the descendants of the last all Black unit, the number two construction battalion. In 1819, John, uh, John Beverly Robinson said that um, residents in Canada made Black people free, giving more support and encouragement to African uh, Africans to come into Canada. Um, but what we have are many opportunities for people to run away. But until 1834, those people could be tracked down by slave catchers in Canada and throughout uh, the United States, of course. I want to just show you a number of different slave ads because I think that um, it places slavery in a very real situation. Here we have a slave ad in Halifax. Here are slave ads that reflect Niagara, um, Belleville, and Halifax. Here we have slave ads that uh, reflect York, that reflect Leith, that reflect Belleville again. And here we have some slave ads that again focus on Newark, uh, focus on York, focus on Quebec, and so forth, because slavery truly was a national phenomenon or as national as could be at the time. So the Slavery Abolition Act is the thing that propelled the largest freedom movement of the Americas, the Underground Railroad. Because slavery was possible under the law, effective August 1st in the lands we now call Canada, people of African origin who already were alerted to the possibility they could be free from various things that took place earlier, including those people, those African men who had fought on these shores during the War of 1812. They knew that what Canada was about, they knew that they could come here and they could be free. And of course, this leads us to the Underground Railroad. Harriet Tubman, one of the most famous conductors on the Underground Railroad, but clearly not the only conductor on the Underground Railroad. The Underground Railroad, as you know, was not a train, was not a tunnel, um, but it was a way of people who were um, committed to freedom for all, helping those who were needing to be free. Harriet Tubman happened to be one of the people who rose to fame during this time. And while she, her, her, the exact date of her birth is unknown, she was probably born about 1820, 1822 in Bucktown, Maryland. I mention Harriet Tubman because her story is so very compelling. And she's perhaps one of the most outstanding people to influence through her actions, um, people, making the choice to sometimes get to Canada on their own to be free. When she, uh, while she was uh, born in the United States, um, had various duties as an enslaved child, um, including cleaning houses, uh, babysitting, uh, tending to muskrat traps and so forth. It, she ultimately found her niche, so to speak, uh, making the most money for her owner who rented her out um, 
in the fields with her father and her brothers. Her father was a, an inspector on the boats in the Baltimore area. And what her father and her brothers also did was help fell and um, uh, lumber in the Baltimore area, in the Bucktown area. And so on some of her initial uh, forays into the fields, Harriet had the opportunity to, on one occasion, see a man, perhaps by 1835, while she was in the fields with others, husking corn and pulling in the wheat, um, see a man named Jim, who seemed to be trying to escape. She ran, literally, I have visited this location. Um, this is, it really does still exist, the Bucktown General Store. And if you could see across the street from it, it's just nothing but shields. Um, and it, they've kept it very much the way it was um, during the time that Harriet Tubman lived in the area. She um, saw um, Jim trying to escape. He was cornered in this store and um, either because she got in the way or because she was purposely trying to block his exit from um, the, um, block uh, people capturing him, she ended up being hit with a two pound or one kilo counterweight, which left her with a very difficult situation. She had sleep attacks or a form of narcolepsy, and she also was deeply religious. So she had um, visions that took on a, a very uh, spiritual significance for her. She felt that God had um, her back, that God would guide her, and she um, sort of tucked that knowledge away. Uh, Harriet ends up marrying John Tubman. Now, this may not be a photo of Harriet Tubman and her husband, but this is how she acquires the name Tubman. And he was a free Black man, and she found out that he had been made free by virtue of his owner's last will and testament that gave freedom or manumission to his mother. She knew that her own grandmother had been owned by someone who died, and she was able to secure some resources to contact a lawyer, look into the status of her will, of her, the will of this owner, and found out that her family was in fact supposed to have been given their freedom, and nobody had bothered to tell them this. So this really made Harriet exceedingly um, motivated to become a free person. And about 1849, when her owner became quite ill, and when she prayed for him to die, and he did, um, he got taken out of her way, she was really convinced that she had some incredibly strong powers that would help her and she decided to make herself free. So when Harriet does this, she, um, I, I don't know if I, um, my cursor will allow you to see, but she was in the Bucktown area. She followed this air, this route going north on the Choptank River until she ultimately made her way um, through various means into Philadelphia, where she was able to connect with a Black abolitionist community, including William Still. Um, from here, she decided after earning money by working in people's homes, by working in the hotels, that she would go back into the Bucktown area, um, partly because of a, a crisis in her own family with somebody about to be sold to the Deep South, but also because she was just highly motivated to make all of her family free. She enters the Bucktown area to rescue her niece, Marianne, um, and succeeds, gets into Philadelphia, and from there decides to go back again and rescue her husband. He had married someone else, so Harriet decides to make herself, um, make this a voyage that wouldn't be missed, help rescue other people. This is the beginning of Harriet Tubman, essentially rescuing people, but she had to bring them not just into Philadelphia, now she had to bring them into Canada because of the passage of the Fugitive Slave Act, uh, which basically penalized anyone who assisted a fugitive slave, and of course would return fugitive slaves to 
um, their owners or sell them in the Deep South. Where did Harriet Tubman go? She went into St. Catharines, Ontario. Um, at that point in time, with the because of the passage of the Fugitive Slave Act, she had no choice but to come to Canada. And the um, Bethel Chapel, later known as Salem Chapel BME, is where she worshipped, and it was across the street from where she lived. Um, it had started out as an AME church, but became a BME church because of the concerns that people had about being mindful of um, any connection to the United States and wanting to avoid going into the United States while they were still a slaveholding society. Um, you should know that this particular church was designated a National Historic Site by 1999 and um, that National Historic plaques for both the church and for Harriet Tubman, which I proposed, were um, erected later. So this is an incredibly well um, commemorated facility that you can visit right now. Um, just a quick thing here. We looked at some of the slave ads of earlier days, but this is a slave ad that was effected in 1851. And this was a warning to people who were on their way to Canada that they needed to be careful uh, on their way to the north or to Canada because there were people, there were agents who were traveling across the border in order to try to capture people. Um, one more point about Harriet Tubman because I think that it's important. This isn't as clear as I'd like it to be, I apologize. But during the American Civil War, Harriet Tubman is the person who was able to plan and execute a military mission, the only woman in um, American military history and perhaps world military history to do so. And she was successfully able to rescue over 700 people. Now, I wanted to focus a little bit on um, Harriet Tubman only because I think that it's important to talk about the connections between um, uh, the white abolitionist community and the black abolitionist community. And, um, but I'm running out of time here, so maybe I will just move ahead. One of the things that Harriet Tubman was able to do and that I was able um, in, during, during the time that I was doing research on Harriet Tubman is that I was able to um, meet with descendants of Harriet Tubman and effect a reunion between descendants of Harriet Tubman on both sides of the border, uh, her American and her Canadian descendants. And one of her American descendants, Marilee Wilkins, actually owned this shawl, which I had the opportunity to hold before it was donated to the um, National um, Museum of African American History and Culture in the States. Um, Queen Victoria was so impressed with the exploits of Harriet Tubman, the person who may have led as many as 11 of her nine, possible 19 rescue missions beginning and ending from Canada, uh, the person who was this military heroine uh, by virtue of her planned raid in, uh, in, North, in North South Carolina, um, that she was given this particular shawl. She was also somebody who had worked with John Brown. And I will just read you a little bit about him. John Brown visited St. Catharines with uh, John Loguin in April 1858. He arrived in Chatham in April 1858 to recruit men to end slavery and overthrow the American government. As a white abolitionist, he envisioned surprise attacks being made against plantations from bases in the Appalachians. He felt that slaves freed in this manner would join his trained group and continue attacking plantations, freeing other slaves until finally setting up new, a new provisional government. 
He recruited in Chatham, Buxton, Ingersoll, Hamilton, and Toronto, and was feeling confident of his, his support when he met Harriet Tubman in St. Catharines. Um, he also found a black printer in St. Catharines and gave him the provisional constitution to reproduce. Brown asked Harriet to bring as many fugitives to join the pending battle as she could and to be the chief guide to Canada for the many who would want to settle uh, after the war was waged and won. Brown said that Harriet Tubman was the most of a man naturally that he had ever met with. He was greatly impressed with Tubman and referred to her in the male gender as a sign of his admiration for her proven military skill. He advised his son by letter that General Tubman had hooked her whole team to his cause and Harriet uh, uh, assured Brown of her support. But that never really happened um, because Harriet became ill and didn't um, join um, Brown's side. I mention this also because um, we're just a couple of days away from um, Valentine's Day, um, January, February the 14th, and a couple of days away from February the 12th. And these are the two dates in the year that were chosen to mark February as Black History Month. Um, Harriet did not feel that um, it was President Abraham Lincoln who fully had committed to um, support um, the full freedom of African-Americans. However, his birthday is February 14th and he is the person who ultimately did sign the Emancipation Proclamation. But Harriet didn't have full support in his ability to see her see through and care for her people. Um, just a quick note here, often people will say that Harriet Tubman and other African-Americans returned to the United States because of the weather, because it's so cold in Canada. This is just a reminder that our weather systems are not appreciably different. Um, there's only a matter of a couple of degrees difference in our weather. But Harriet did end up in her last days living in Auburn, New York, and she ended up ultimately um, creating a home for seniors, which she ended up living in and dying in by March of 1911. Um, Harriet Tubman is um, a phenomenal woman. Um, I want to read you something about her passing because this was written by, this was in the possession of her Canadian descendant. Harriet Tubman's dedication, commitment, and courage, her ability to keep on going no matter what the obstacles, and her genuine concern for others show her to be a woman who made a difference to Blacks, to abolitionists, to North American history. Her example compelled others to forge their own freedom train. The following priceless narrative was provided by a Canadian descendant of Harriet Tubman. It was kept safely among her family's personal collection since it is the freedom story of her ancestors. If you map out the route, you will note that it was not as direct to the shortest entry point into Ontario from West Virginia, adding to the duration and the stress involved in the escape. It is possible that routes were blocked or that freedom seekers needed to travel in the opposite direction to throw off suspicion that they were headed to Canada. You will note the strong motivation of the individuals to be together, to seek each other out and to live in freedom, no matter the cost. So here we go. The Underground Railroad escape story of Lucy Canada, born June 10th, 1813, and Stephen Street as told by their daughter, Henrietta Street, a Canadian Tubman connection. My mother was born in Parkersburg, West Virginia in 1813. Her father's name was Arian Kennedy and her mother's name was Mila Canada. Mother had two brothers and one sister. Her name was Melinda. Brothers were William and George. 
Their owner's name was Barnes Beckwith, he being the son of an English gentleman by the name of Sir Jonathan Beckwith, broken down by sporting with horses, hounds, and cards. And the old man kept a lot of hounds at that time. Mother said that they were not treated like slaves, but she could not bear the thought of not belonging to herself, especially we three children. Our names were as follows, Henrietta Street, Ellen Elizabeth, and Andrew Clark. Clark was a favored young doctor of the young ladies. The lady was Miss Jane Beckwith, Miss Mary and Mandy and Penelope Beckwith, and two sons, Barnes and Albert. They were all very kind, but that, but that did not suffice. Father belonged to another man, Billy Neal. I have heard him name two or three different ones, Jonas Lewis and Frank Keene. His home, that was father's home, was about seven miles from mother's. His master was about to sell him when he ran away. Traveling under the name of Frank Hammond, fought his way out of the hands of the oppressor and fled to the land of freedom, landing in Canada at Windsor. Father left his masters about six weeks before mother and three children followed him, her two brothers and a fellow servant named Nero Bansom. He being so white in complexion that he would venture out to, um, to seek aid while we lay in hiding, while he found friends until we arrived at Astabula. There we got on board a schooner and landed at Port Albino, settled in the neighborhood at Birdie. Then mother advertised for father and he came at once. Her brother George came with her and saw her settled, but William went to Malden. In a short time, we were moved near St. Catharines on the farm of one Peter Smith. There they were converted by, and baptized by Elder Christian of Toronto and became members of the Zion Church in St. Catharines. And in, so in time, they moved to Grand River with the intention of making a home there. And here they found the same God that had brought them from the land of bondage. This is from the personal collection of Betty Brown, a Canadian descendant of Harriet Tubman. I mention all of this because the reason that we are where we are today is because of the resilience of people who were able to survive the horrors of enslavement, the challenges of um, passages and transporting themselves and making themselves free and coming into Canada and building up communities from very little with really scant support. These were people that were incredibly resilient and had to face barriers that were there based on the color of their skin. Um, the fact that they were known to have been descendants of enslaved Africans was almost like it was the prescription for how they should be treated forever. Um, but they survived, they contributed, and they developed communities. Um, this is a community, a connection to St. Catharines, but there are Black communities, pockets of Black communities throughout Ontario, including Mississauga, including Oakville. And it's just a matter of us being a mindful of those stories. The way we regarded people in the past tracks forward to the way we treat people in the future. And I think that for me, uh, while I, time doesn't permit me to go into all of the uh, ways that um, Black people have contributed to this country, I think that having um, a bit of a sense of this one story is an example of what people had to go through. And if Harriet Tubman was such a, a well-known person and is credited with bringing perhaps as many as 300 people to Canada, think of those people who kind of made it on their own and had absolutely no one around, no Reverend Hiram Wilson to offer support, nothing but the, their own hands, their own grit and their own determination. Um, the fact that we have Black Lives Matters today is because Black lives have not always mattered as much as they should. Thank you doesn't say it enough, 
Rosemary. <laughs> it's, uh, um, how, uh, how do people get in touch with you? Uh, um, is there a way that you'd like to share for people looking to book you and talk to you about speaking engagements? Well, um, I'm on Twitter, I'm on uh, LinkedIn, and I'm on Facebook. And you spell my name, uh, and my, e my email is my name, rosemary, R-O-S-E-M-A-R-Y, dot Sadler, S-A-D-L-I-E-R, at gmail.com. And this is my book on Harriet Tubman that I was trying to read from. I don't know if you can see it or not. It seems to work. Yep. So what? What? Uh, that, that's a great segue because I was just uh, in part of my thank you to you. I was going to list some of your books, and I, I have randomly taken them. So forgive me if I've, I'm missing one that you want to bring up. But uh, we have uh, some of the books that you uh, you have authored: uh, "Leading the Way," "Black Women in Canada." Nobody will get that one anymore. But that was my <laughs> first book. <laughs> uh, then you showed a picture. You showed the cover of the, the kids' book of Black Canadian history. A Canadian bestseller still available on Amazon. Uh, and then I believe the one that you just showed up is uh, Harriet Tubman, Freedom Seeker, Freedom Leader. With Dundurn Press. Yeah. Yep. And uh, then we had the Harriet Tubman and the Underground Railroad. That's not available any longer. Oh, that was for kids. Yeah. We might we might be able to track them down. <laughs> uh, and Marianne Shad, uh, Marianne Shad, publisher, editor, teacher, lawyer, and suffragette. Yes. And then this one, if you can see it, and you probably can't, is called Black History, Africa, the Caribbean, and the Americas. And it was just listed as one of the important books by the Writers Union of Nova Scotia for, for Black History Month. Yeah, Rosemary, I, I, I'm not even quite sure how to, to sum up and say thank you. I mean, I, I was looking, uh, when I was trying to, to, to find a contact for you and, and, uh, and, and connect with you, I, I, I came across articles uh, on CBC and others. And, uh, you know, one, one of them uh, has a quote from the CBC article, uh, you're a remarkable woman, you believe in blackness, believes in herself and has done enormous amounts for the community. Uh, well, I haven't seen that one, but oh, that's I'll have to send you the link. <laughs> um, and another one that attributes a quote to you, and I think this is, uh, it's an amazing uh, kind of sum up, I think, to your talk about connecting history and making those links into the present and, and understanding our stories. And uh, one needs traditional history to engender a common culture. One needs black history to engender a clearer and more complete culture. Uh, and I, I there's a one of my favorite quotes from history and it's attributed to many but I think it's Isaac Newton gets the biggest press on it but you know uh, uh, if I have seen further than most it's because I've stood on the shoulders of giants and I, I think in terms of of you know Henry Bibb and uh, uh, Harriet Tubman and Frederick Douglass and you know those are the giants from our history but uh, I think what's important to me in, in this is that the, the story of exploring those also has its modern giants, and I think you are one of them, and I want to thank you for being one of those people that helps us see clearer. Uh, I don't know if we see clearly yet, but I think we can see a little clearer because of, of the work that you've done, and, uh, and, and you know, I, I thank you for the resources that you, you've, you've explored and shared with us, but your willingness to engage with us as well. I think that's part of you know, our continuing effort to to reach an audience with a story. And for us here in Mississauga, we, we try to connect to those stories here at home, uh, as well as to the broader story. And, and um, we, as we explore these uh, stories and share them, we, we are coming up with more links to that broader story. And, and I think that is, it, it's remarkable. And, and I just, you know, truly to say thank you. And, uh, uh, but I had one thing, I, you, you have so many uh, uh, well-deserved, uh, recognitions like I that's a bad word to say I know you're a recipient of the Queen's Jubilee medal and you know here we are in the Queen's uh, 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 platinum Jubilee year now and uh, uh, but you're a Kentucky colonel I heard I, <laughs> I, that that's it I've never talked to a Kentucky colonel that I'm aware of. I'm, I'm truly a Kentucky colonel and I don't fry very good chicken so <laughs> I just have to say that it's not that kind of colonel but here's what happened I um Long story short, I, I nominated Harriet Tubman for National Historic Recognition. I've nominated many different people, uh, places, and events for historic recognition locally, regionally, and nationally. 
Well, there was one in Toronto and it was um, for Lucy and Thornton Blackburn. And a long, very long story, they had been enslaved in Kentucky, made themselves free, ended up in Detroit. Um, they had um, been secreted out of Detroit into Windsor and ultimately made their way into Toronto. And Carolyn Smarts Frost had done a lot of research on them, but I realized that the information was not out there. And I thought that one of the ways of, of really affirming her work and getting the information out there was to nominate them for national historic recognition. So I did that. And when she found out that I had done that, she was, I think, really appreciative. And she uh, worked with her contacts in Kentucky where the Blackburns had come from. And we had a binational commemoration. So we went to Kentucky first and um, we had, uh, I was surprised, surprised. I was made a Kentucky Colonel as was she. And you know, the lovely ceremony was quite nice. And then on the way back, I missed my flight. So I, but we got to got to the commemoration in, in Toronto. I'm pointing again, like you can see. Um, and we had the unveiling uh, of the at the um, at the schoolhouse where there it's land that they had left the city of Toronto, which ultimately was used to build a school because they had no children. But big important thing among the things that they did, the legacy, they left the colors that we use for our public transit because they started a taxi cab service and the colors they use for their taxi cab service are kind of the colors that we use for our more traditional streetcars. Wow, I, I, the, the links are amazing. They just leave these connections to our past. And sometimes it, you know history gets hidden in plain sight. And I think that's just sort of a, a fascinating thing. So with that, I mean, we could go on. I feel like I, I don't want to say goodbye, but, uh, you know, thank you so much for uh, not only joining us, but this incredible exploration through connecting to these, 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 these layers of our story that continue right up to the modern era and, you know, helping us perhaps, you made a reference uh, in, in your presentation today, uh, just to um, how we treat people in the past uh, tracks forward to how we treat people in, uh, I guess, the present and the future. And, you know, I think open talks like this and, and the willingness to engage and the willingness for organizations to help spread that message in the, in the current era. And plus, we, like you mentioned, the, the, uh, uh, the Black Lives Matter movement and so many other, uh, other uh, movements or, or uh, resources in the community, historic sites, et cetera, that, 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 that connect, they help perhaps change that trajectory uh, of, of, the, of the, how we treat people. And, and perhaps that gives us hope moving forward that we will get there. It, like you mentioned school curriculum that it's painfully slow at times to adopt, uh, adopt new, uh, new methods and new uh, concepts in the, in the school. But you give me hope. I think that's my biggest thing coming forward that, that we will see a new new path uh, emerge and, and be charted forward. Um, so thank you so very much. And uh, like I said, this will be on our, uh, you, you can catch this again as a as recorded repeat on our podcast channels. And uh, I know we have a, a recorded thank you at the end, but I, I just wanted to say thank you so very much for your willingness to talk with us. Oh, my pleasure. And I encourage you all to do your part to learn more about Black history, read, watch some of the Black history presentations. Apparently, the William Still story was on recently. There's something on uh, Discovery Channel about secrets of the Underground Railroad. Um, there's a, a lot of really interesting material coming out. Black in Canada. Yes, there are Black people in this country. Um, you should be keep, keep involved. Try something new. Thank you for joining us today for our third webinar in our four-part series, Black Heritage Matters. We would like to thank Rosemary Sadlier for sharing this presentation with Heritage Mississauga and opening up these courageous and educational discussions to our followers. And we hope that these conversations continue. It is through understanding the truth of our history in its entirety that we can build connections understanding and allyship for our diverse communities in Mississauga. Heritage Mississauga would also like to thank the Community Foundation of Mississauga and the City of Mississauga for their financial support to help us to continue to bring educational programs and resources, such as this webinar series, to our followers. 
Join us next week on February 23rd at 12 o'clock p.m. as we welcome Dr. Brian Walls from the John Freeman Walls Historic Site and Underground Railroad Museum, who will be sharing his presentation of The Road That Led to Somewhere. Don't forget to like and subscribe to our social media, YouTube, and podcast channels to stay up to date on all of Heritage Mississauga's programs and events.